You're listening to Book Stories, podcast about bookstores, books, and book culture. I'm your host, Vic Singh. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. And tell a friend. Help spread the word. This is a conversation I had with Janet Geddes, owner of Avid Bookshop in Athens, Georgia. Janet's a dynamic and interesting person and the spark that has ignited a thriving book scene in Athens. Here's our conversation. Why don't we start at the beginning, if that's okay with you? Um, sure. What's the origin story? How did uh, Avid come to be? It's, it's kind of a long story, but like a lot of book lovers, I had dreamt off and on about how great it would be to work at a bookstore or even own a bookstore, but I never really thought of it as a viable career option until I tried out lots of other jobs that everyone told me I would love. So I have a master's degree in gifted education. So I was training to work as a teacher in the classroom, working with gifted and creative students. And even though I love the students, I knew that working in a school every day would probably crush me. I don't have the stamina for it. What is gifted education? I've never heard of that before. So it's um, gifted is it can be defined various ways, but my graduate program is for, kids that are, um, uh, I guess, excel in a certain area. So the Georgia definition is a little wider than other states. We consider all sorts of giftedness and creativity. So it could be someone who excels at uh, visual arts, someone else who's a musician who just is above his or her, their peers. A lot of the time it's people who have scored exceptionally well on um, IQ tests or basic aptitude tests. and what I was really fascinated, oh, I'm fascinated by many things about that, but I worked for several years for the uh, program called the Governor's Honors Program. Uh, several states have something like this, but when I worked at the Georgia chapter, it was a six-week summer enrichment program for gifted, talented, and creative high school students. So it was a way for kids who maybe in their ordinary school lives weren't able to be challenged at the appropriate level, could spend six weeks with other people who were just as obsessed with math or violin or theater as they were. So it was just really a place where people could feel very bold and feel like they belonged in a really meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time people, some naysayers say that, you know, you shouldn't, are you focusing on gifted kids, people who are average or maybe kids who are struggling deserve the help too. To which I say, I agree. I think every child needs to be challenged at the appropriate level, and it changes subject to subject. So one kid that might excel in math might need a lot of help with reading. Um, I really focused a lot of my graduate studies on students with dual exceptionality, so kids that were and are you know, extremely artistically gifted and or scored high in intelligence tests or just really excelled at projects in class, but maybe had a learning disability at the same time. So traditionally, in the old days, they used to just sort of label kids with high intelligence. But now there's a much broader spectrum. Um, What's the age bracket for these t- these kids that are in this, I guess, in this category of being considered gifted? Like, when does it start and when does it typically end? I wish that I could remember, because I used to be uh, an expert in this. Uh, I believe that in my state, at least, people generally, um, you can start being enrolled in the gifted program in kindergarten or first grade. A lot of the time that's because a teacher has noticed something exceptional about you. And one thing that 
I studied a lot in graduate school was trying to figure out for kids that are performing exceptionally well in certain areas, but maybe aren't teacher pleasers. <laughs> you have to make sure that those kids are challenged as well and maybe yeah. brought out for gifted testing. Um, but it goes, I mean, it can, honestly, it goes through your entire life. But as far as Georgia programs, it tends to be, I think the, the public school programming goes from kindergarten through 12th grade. And then there are programs like Governor's Honors, which each school can nominate a student in certain areas and then they go through this rigorous audition and interview process and then about 700 students from across Georgia are chosen and those are rising juniors and seniors. So that was my passion and just due to bureaucracy and Georgia Department of Education politics, it ended up not coming to fruition. (laughs) I didn't mean to take I didn't mean to take you on that tangent. It was oh, just no. you, you said something that was really interesting, and I I like to learn new things as I do these these interviews. So it's oh, yeah. really cool. You have this degree and you have this background in gifted education, but something was missing. Yes, I didn't feel passionate about the job prospects I had um, once I realized that the job that I was sort of training myself for wasn't an option. I realized I didn't want to be in a classroom, and so I I worked piecemeal. I I worked for the Clark County School District, which is our local school district. I worked for the homeless education program there, uh, tutoring kids that were experiencing homelessness, uh, going to different homeless shelters and doing story time. Like everything always was related to books in some way. Literacy. Yes. Yeah. Literacy and reading. And that's still everything that, you know, people would say, like, oh, you'd be such a good teacher. And I'd say, I, I am, and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. They say, oh, you'd be such a, you're, you're a really good nanny, and I nannied for a long time, and I love that, too, but I, I wasn't, I love the kids that I worked with in all aspects, but I wasn't excited to go to work. I was happy once I was there, but I wanted something that I would be enthused by every day. Sure. And on the, to complicate things, I have chronic migraine disease, although right now I'm not quite chronic, but that means 15 or more days out of every month at the time were affected by migraine. So I wanted to have this dream job, but I also have been told by my former neurologist that I probably couldn't hold a full-time job ever. So I was balancing between being an extremely ambitious, intelligent person wanting to find some sort of career that was really fulfilling, but also wondering if I could even pull it off. I mean, how if I couldn't work even 40 hours a week, how am I going to have a job that I really want to throw everything into? Yeah. So I was talking with a friend of mine. Uh, she and I used to talk a lot off and on about how much it, how much fun it would be to open a bookstore together. But it was just one of those silly conversations you'd have at happy hour. It was never anything we thought seriously about, or I didn't at least. And one time she was traveling the country as part of one of her part-time jobs. And I sent her, we were exchanging snail mail. So she would tell me, you know, the next city we're going to be in is this, and here's the P.O. box. So... I sent her a letter one day, and in it I said, you know, we always talk about opening a bookstore in Athens. What if we really did it? And then sent the letter, and the next day I checked my mail, and there's a letter from her that says something very similar. Like, we always talk about opening a bookstore someday. Like, do you really do you want to talk about actually doing it? And so then I either texted or called her. I can't remember now because this is in 2007. I said, Amy, that's so crazy. Like, do you have super fast mail or what? She was like, what are you talking about? And I said, how did you already get my letter and write back? I don't get it. And she was like, what letter? <laughs> so he had never seen my letter. But, our but you guys were both crossed. thinking the same thing at the same time. Yes. Yeah, it was really cool. So when she got back from that 
summer job, we started doing a lot of research and we realized that not only were we really excited about the prospect of it, but that Athens was the perfect place to open an independent bookstore. Um, It's a really creative town. Every other person is a musician or visual artist or writer or all three. Like it's just an enclave of this amazing creativity. There's a strong university system, which, as you may know, is a good signal for an independent bookstore. Sure. Um, And we have an educated clientele. um, So a lot of the time that bodes well. And to be fair, Athens, Clark County, where where I live, is has a very dramatic discrepancy between the rich and the poor. We have a really high poverty rate, a really high uh, high school dropout rate, but we also have people on the other end of the spectrum who are paid really well and are extremely educated. And then, of course, we have the extremely educated people who aren't paid well. So we sort of run the gamut, but we knew that to start, we had an educated clientele with disposable income, and we knew that if we could sort of tap into that market first, then we could make enough money to sort of work on some of our plans to help people that were at lower reading levels and lower socioeconomic statuses. Was there another bookstore in Athens at the time? No, and that is an excellent point I forgot to bring up. There had been a few here and there that had opened over the years, but there hadn't been like a thriving bookstore that was conceptualized the way we thought of Avid. Like there was no store that hosted events, uh, did author readings, and there hadn't been for a while. We did have a used bookstore downtown that had been, they actually closed at the very end of 2015, but they were around for, I think, over 35 years. But there wasn't a new bookstore. And so we knew that there was a big opportunity for this. So, And no chains or no, no like, smaller or, like, medium-sized brands were in the in town? There, So there's a Barnes & Noble that's still open. I think that's, like, five miles away from... The, what we call like the in-town neighborhoods of Athens. Yeah. Where, um, and then, so it's out kind of near the mall. And then there was a Borders that closed in September 2011. And then my store opened in October 2011. I've noticed a trend there where, where a Borders closes and then a couple of indies have popped up. And it's, it's, it's cool. It's nice to see. Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of cool. So you opened in 2011, you said? Yeah, so it was a four-year journey, and uh, why? What, what were you tossing ideas around? What was the? What was that little? If you can encapsulate that four-year transition period, I guess I'll call it. Uh, what was? What were you guys doing? What kinds of things were you bouncing around with your? I guess do, did you co-found? Do you co-own this with your friend that you mentioned? Well, no, and that is that's one of the reasons it took so long to open. Is that about a year into planning, she? I hope I'm not peeling back any scabs or anything. Oh, no. I'm, okay. I'm open about it, and if I weren't, I would be saying, like, I would rather not talk about that. Let's move on. And this is open info, but, yeah, Amy decided about a year into it, very smartly, because about a year into it was 2008 when the economy really started to crash. And I think she looked at the reality, the financial reality of what it would take to open a bookstore, and she had just finished law school and had all the corresponding debt a couple, from a couple years ago. And she said, like, it just would not be responsible for me right now to take on more debt and try to open this door. So I had to decide if I wanted to go solo. And I probably would have decided yes right away and kept going 100% for it. But I was nervous about my chronic illness. I wasn't sure. Because I had been starting this, I, I had been on this journey with a close friend who knew me well and who understood that she was going into business with someone who would be completely absent a lot of the time. 
suddenly I was doing it by myself. And so I was wondering, you know, how would that look financially? And what happens if the owner can't go in for three days out of the week? You know, it's kind of balancing all those and the economy crash at the same time. So once I decided 100% that I was going to go for it anyway, that's when banks were meeting with me and telling me that they really were impressed with the business plan and the financial projections, but they weren't giving loans. Or other banks would say, we're interested, and then I would see in the news a couple weeks later that the banks had failed. <laughs> you know, it was just yeah. sort of one thing after another. Yeah. But everything came together in 2011, like the, the exact space I wanted that I had dreamt of opening the store in, but I, I didn't want the current tenant to go out of business. I just somehow wanted that space. And that ended up being my space because it turns out I'm taking a walk with someone who now has been working with me for years. And I said, oh, this is my dream spot for Avid. And she said, oh, you should take it. You know, the owner's moving. And I said, what? <laughs> she's like, yeah, she's moving her business down the street. And so, like, just things like that kept happening all throughout probably spring and summer of 2011, where it really felt like the timing was right where and then the my yeah. local bank came through with this really innovative funding plan like just all these things lined up all of a sudden timing is everything for sure mm-hmm. yeah it was really cool how'd you come up with the name that is my friend amy's name i actually had been <laughs> pushing for the name word and loved it and she always wanted avid i always wanted word and probably a month after i told another good friend that i wanted to open a bookstore I was visiting him in Brooklyn, and we came out of the subway, and immediately at the top of the subway stairs, there's this bookstore. His word. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, oh, this is the new bookstore in my neighborhood. And I was like, dang it, they have my name. <laughs> so we ended up going with Avid, and now the owner of Word is one of my best friends that I probably talk to like two or three times a day. But it all kind of worked out, but it was just funny. But yeah, Avid Bookshop was Amy's idea, and once I realized that Word was taken, we went with it, and... It's been good, and we deliberately call it bookshop instead of bookstore. We think it sounds, oh, we and now I think it sounds a little more quaint, and it also, I think, sets up the expectation for people that it's going to be a little smaller. Yeah. And maybe a little more neighborhood-oriented. It, it just sounds a little more charming to me. What about the subtitle, anti, or anti-established? Oh. <laughs> Whose idea was that? And I, I liked it. I saw the sign and I, and I thought there has to be some sort of a, had to be some sort of a conversation about that too. And I'm curious if you could share that. Yes. So I, when I was starting the shop, I worked with a graphic designer who's a friend of the family who lives in Milwaukee. And I was telling her about my dream for the store and she offered to do some work at a low cost because she's wonderful. So we we're talking about the store and she showed me that concept and I remember telling her like oh it's true but I don't want to turn people off and she kind of gave me what was my first of many lessons in graphic design and presentation and she said you know if we put it in like an old-fashioned more charming font and if you do have it on a hanging placard versus you know slashed and like sort of like heavy metal style writing she's like it gives a totally different message it's a little more tongue-in-cheek and so I agreed to put it on the sign based on her feedback and ideas and I've loved it ever since and people comment on it a lot which delights me but it is true I mean we're very I don't want to say we're anti-establishment exactly but we we very much march to the beat of our own drummer and I have a staff that I I check in with a lot to make sure that they are comfortable with the direction we're moving um, as things have gotten more strained politically we have become more and more outspoken but i do go back periodically and check with everyone and say i want to make sure that it's okay like we're going to be doing this and they're like okay let's do it so we don't we're not beholden to any shareholders i mean i'm the sole owner 
in it. I have a staff of, I think we have 24 people now. And so I work very much with them to make sure that they feel comfortable with how things are going. But I would say we're firmly anti-established, but there's something different about the connotation of anti-establishment. For some reason, I'd rather just say anti-established. <laughs> It's a double entendre, and it, it, it's open, mm-hmm. it leaves it open to the imagination. That's great. Um, what does a typical day look like for you? Well, that's charming you should ask, because it's, it's never the same. Right. Today, I had a meeting with another friend who owns a business in downtown Athens, and she and I meet once a week to talk about business and to sort of set goals so that we have somebody else outside of our own businesses to check in with. So I met with her, uh, and then headed over. I have two stores, so I headed to the first shop. When did the second one open? The second one opened November 2016, so a little over five years after the first. And it's about two miles away. When you opened the first one, did the community embrace it from the get-go? Or was there a little bit of a... Oh, my God, yeah. How, how was that experience? It was incredible. So I did. I shared the whole journey of opening the shop from the moment, I think in 2007 or eight. I announced that I was going to open a bookstore. And so people kind of got to know me, people I wasn't already friends with got to know me as, you know, the girl who's going to open a bookstore. And so I really put the story out there. And so when we would have a really great day going to like Mark and Donna Kaufman's bookstore boot camp, I would talk about that. Like, hey, I'm in Florida for the week going to bookstore boot camp. This is so awesome. I'm working hard. And then there would also be times when we'd have major setbacks and I would share that on our Facebook page and let people know because at the time that was the main way people kind of stayed in touch with what we were doing or what I was doing at Avid. That's interesting. You were building, you were kind of building a community before you even had the store going. So you have this built in. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool. And were you doing this on a blog or were you doing this on where you said Facebook? I did it on Facebook and on a blog that I, that is now dormant, but yeah, so it was just sort of bringing people into the journey and I think it really hit home with a lot of people. The longer it took to open, I'm sure that there were some naysayers and luckily they have not made themselves known to me, but most people were cheering us along and wanting the store to open. And so by the time I signed a lease, I had met so many people in the community. I had gotten really involved with our by local initiatives. I was trying to volunteer a lot. I was still working for the school district homeless education program. I was still very much involved with the community and spending a lot of time volunteering, doing a lot of future customer surveys and market research. I mean, I was out there in my city making it known that I wanted to open a bookstore and I also wanted to improve the city and make it a better place for people. And so by the time I signed the lease, there was this crew of people led by one woman in particular who banded together all these people who came and dusted and painted and cleaned my new retail space. So everything from all this labor that I did not have the budget for because my bank loan was so tiny, the neighborhood showed up and, you know, I bought the paint, they painted the wall. And now when people come in, they can say like, Hey, see that window? I painted that window. And behind that bookshelf, I, Wrote my initials. You know, there are all these cute little things that really made it the community's bookstore in a genuine way and not any kind of cliche way, which is cool. That's very cool. Um, and people have stayed involved, which is awesome. In terms of the design, what were some stores or places that you were inspired by when figuring out how your place would look? There are a few stores that really stand out to me. I, I really loved uh, Word once I visited it, once I realized it existed. Um, I think what the owner, Christine Honorati, has done there at the Brooklyn location, which 
is her first of two locations, but the Brooklyn location was the only one that opened when I was planning my store. She has a very small space, but used it so creatively and had a lot of stock without the inventory amount feeling overwhelming and had really great staff and still does to greet you and want to help you and wrap your gifts for free. You know, it was just a really great experience from a tiny shop. Um, I had not really grown up with a tiny quaint independent bookstore that sold new books. Um, As a kid, we would go to a bookstore in Atlanta called Oxford, which was incredible, but it was huge. Um, But I loved it, and that was my first experience with an indie bookstore, and we would go to used bookstores here and there. But it wasn't, I think in high school is when I used to go to Barnes & Noble, and I loved it, but it always felt too overwhelming to me. At the time, that was my only option for buying books in suburban Atlanta because a lot of the other stores had closed. And so I would say that while I know that Barnes & Noble has a particular customer and it's very appealing to a lot of people, I kind of used that as a foil to what I wanted to develop. Instead of having a lot of copies of a ton of books, I wanted to have a few copies of books that were really carefully selected for the store. I also thought a lot about customer service as I planned my store. So from everything from where how the shelves are laid out to where the counter is at each store to the methods by which I train my staff to greet and engage with customers. I just really wanted people from you know, the most gregarious people all the way to the shyest people on the planet who can't quite make eye contact. I wanted all of those people to feel comfortable browsing at the bookshop. And even if it takes the shy people a few visits for them to be able to speak up and ask about a book. I just wanted them to know it was a safe and comfortable place for them. So I sort of designed my store for that. But yeah, I can't really think of other specific bookstores that inspired me apart from just, I mean, every time I travel and I have done this for years, I just go to independent bookstores and I see what I like and what I don't like and sort of take pieces here and there from bookstores. And as you probably know from this podcast and your own research, the indie book industry is amazing and how much people like to share and are saying, you know, this idea works for my store, please go back and copy it at your store. And when I talk to people in other industries, including other types of retail, they look at me sort of surprised because that apparently is not common at all for people to be so sharing and open with each other and wanting everybody to steal each other's ideas. No, it's true. That sentiment has been communicated to me over and over. Um, How big are your stores? How big is the, is the first location? And then how big is the second location? Uh, the first store is a little under 800 square feet, okay. and about 750 of that is selling square space. The other one is about 1,100 square feet okay. minus our office and bathroom. So it's a little. There's a little bit more selling space. Yes. Um, how do you curate that? Are, are you primarily in charge of what you stock or uh, what's your thought process on uh, You mentioned Word and you were kind of amazed or you're very much into how they optimize the small space. How do you optimize a small space, I guess, is question number one. And then question number two is how do you fill it? Like what is what kinds of titles are you looking for? Um, my reason for asking is I one of the things that's so cool about indie bookstores is that the titles to me, at least the ones that I've been to over the course of my life have all been very intentional. It's not just sort of like a spray, every bestseller that's out there and just kind of like sell what you can find on a quick internet search. Everything there is kind of very intentional. Mm-hmm. 
And it's thought out by either one human or multiple humans. So I just like to hear how, how you think about your store when you walk in, what types of books it needs to have and how you maximize that experience. You mentioned it as well, like browsability, discoverability. So if you could just talk a little bit about that, I'd like to hear your philosophy on it. Oh, sure. So as far as optimizing space goes, I mean, we are continually changing the layout of the store to make it more customer friendly and to make sure that people feel comfortable pulling a book off a display, making sure we have enough white space or free space around our gift items so that they don't look crowded and junky. You know, we're very careful with displays and we're always learning. So even yesterday when I, a couple of days ago, I walked into the Prince Avenue store, which is the first shop, and my staff was delighted to show me that they had rearranged some of the shelving in the kids section. And it looked amazing. It was like one of those solutions where I just thought to myself, like, why didn't I think of this before? This is so obvious. Like, of course we should have moved this shelf to here and then scooted that over two inches. It looks beautiful. <laughs> so we're, we're always shifting things around, even in subtle ways. And I was talking to a couple of my managers today about how it's something that the booksellers notice right away. But a lot of the time, I don't think customers even understand. They don't know what is different but it does feel different for the regular customers. And I think that's important to kind of keep it, in addition to having different books on display and having different merchandise and gift items, just subtly changing the way that the angle of the shelving or, you know, the, the kids' graphic novels is moving from this section to this section. Just being able to do little shifts in the store, their brain registers that something is different and fresh and it makes them have that connotation for, you know, Avid Bookshop is always, there's always going to be something new to see. So it's worth visiting. It's going to be different than it was two days ago, and it's going to be different than it was last week. Um, but I know that what I'm going to find there is good. And our Five Point store, which is the newer store, it is a little bigger, and it's a little more tra traditionally spaced. So the, the first store, oh, my geometry teacher would kill me. I can't remember the name of the shape, but it's essentially, we're in the center of a triangular block. So the front of the shop is angled and the back of the shop is angled. Mm. And so it's a little, you can't just put shelves wall to wall in there because they won't fit right. So we had to be really creative and wonky with that space and kind of figure out what sort of shelving worked and what felt like it was too overwhelming or too big for the space. Um, we also want to make sure that we leave a lot of negative space. Like in the kids section, there are clouds and a sky painted on the ceiling, which is something else that I that I really wanted in my kids' section. And the first time I went into my dream space, it was already painted, which is crazy. <laughs> but I, we have all this great space in there. So, like, when we start stacking, you know, books to be returned, we always try to lower those stacks because it's important for people not to have their eyeballs and brains overwhelmed by just too much stuff because then the stuff looks like crap. While we're not super fancy, we want people to see books as a beautiful item worthy of saving money for and not just like, oh, here's a bunch of books stacked up in ugly stacks. But in the Five Point store, it's essentially a vanilla box. So because I had more access to funding by the time I opened the second store, I didn't necessarily have more money to spend, but you know, I had proven that we could be a successful business. We got a bigger loan to open that store, and I worked with a local woodworking and design company to lay out the store more deliberately. And again, because it's all right angles, that one was a little easier yeah. to plan. But we still have, in each store, we have a sort of just this like a little magical thing that is, is I guess at the heart appeals to kids, but really appeals to every kid at heart. Just so the first store, we have what we call the book balloons. I, I commissioned a local artist to make 
a hot air balloon and then the basket is on the floor so you can climb in and sit on beanbags and read books and at night the, there's a light inside the balloon. Cool. So it's just a glowing, beautiful hot air balloon. Yeah, it's awesome. And then the other store, the new store, we have the book Boat, which I envision with the uh, creators, with a woodworking company. And so there's like a little, like adults can just walk around and step one step into the boat. There are these nice, generous seating areas for more than one person or larger people. And then there's also a little tunnel that kids can go through and inside there are these little blue stars and hearts and moons. It's kind of cool for them. Oh, it's very, very experiential for the kids. Yeah. It's neat. It's just little moments. That... You make it a destination and, and as opposed to just a place to do transactions. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Exactly. Yeah. So we try to make it magical. And now I have a, I have my second, I hired a gift buyer a couple of years ago and she had to leave for personal reasons. But the gift buyer I have now used to own a store in downtown Athens and now she does the gift buying. So gift meaning anything non-book, all the planners and journals and greeting cards and She's done an exquisite job of of making sure that we don't just have gifts. It's gifts for readers. So she always, she's choosing everything, every non-book item to sort of elevate the book. Ah. So she doesn't overwhelm us with it. But everything is, everything you see is something that would appeal to someone who loves books already. So they're not necessarily obviously themed, but the more when you kind of think about the product she brings in, it's like, oh, I see why she got this. That's yeah, really cool. Yeah. And she's an expert merchandiser. That's that's interesting. Another unique thing that I saw that you have in your store is a subscription program. How does that work, and how's it going? Oh, it's going so great, and I love it. It's maybe one of our favorite things we do. So as opposed to a more traditional book of the month club where everybody who signs up gets either the same exact book or gets to choose among two or three books. Um, the Avid Bookshop book subscription program, which we are soon to be rebranding, I think Avid Snail Mail, <laughs> we have expert booksellers who know all about reading, um, who are choosing a book specifically for you under the guidance of Kristen, who's our book subscriptions manager. And so, say Vic's buying a subscription for himself. You would fill out, you would let us know if you want three, six, or 12 months. And then Kristen would send you a little survey and you would fill out. I mean, the questions kind of change time to time, but it's not always book related. Sometimes she'll say, like, what movie did you watch recently? And you couldn't stand. You know, just sort of trying to get a gauge of what you're interested in. Yeah, they're trying to triangulate some like common interests or themes, maybe. Yes, yeah. And it's great and it's fun and silly and people like it. And if, if we're selling a subscription to a child, then usually a parent or a grandparent will help the kid answer or else they'll just answer on their behalf because we do a lot of gift subscriptions for little ones too. I'm sure, but it's yeah. just a fun way to get mail that is catered specifically to you. Yeah, my son loves getting mail. He's four, so that's actually a really cool idea. Oh, so, my God. Yeah. Yeah, mail is the best. Yeah, so it's really neat, and I think we're trying to position the program so that we can grow it a little more. Do you have out-of-staters or, like, like non-Athens people subscribing to this, or is it a pretty local thing? Yes. Yeah, I think it's a mix. It, it is mixed. Yeah, we have a fair number of people who live in Athens and want to get a really cool gift for a loved one out-of-state. Um, we also have a handful of customers who used to live in Athens that have since moved away and they kind of want a piece of Athens still with them and they still buy stuff from our website, but they want to have 
just sort of that personal touch that they got used to. And then we do have people that I wouldn't know the number, but my guess would be about a third of the people live in town and they're just people that love to get mail. So they appreciate checking the mailbox every month and seeing something new and exciting. And there's usually a note from the subscriptions manager saying like, Hey, Vic, I chose this book for you because you mentioned that you loved XYZ. And so it's just kind of neat. And we also encourage a lot of interaction. So we have some subscribers who choose not to interact with the subscriptions manager. And then we have other ones who love to email all the time saying like, Oh my gosh, I love this book. Or, Oh my gosh, this one drove me crazy. Please don't send me a book dealing with such and such again. But it's always sort of in good fun. And I'd say most of the time people, like what they receive, which is really cool. And the few times that people, once in a while, someone will receive something that they've already read and loved. And my current manager and then the former subscriptions manager used to feel a little bummed by that. But I'd say like, no, dude, that means you hit it. You hit the nail on the head. Yeah, it <laughs> does actually. If you send them a book yeah. that's one of their favorites in the world, like you got them. And those people are welcome to bring their book back and then we can send them something else. And yeah, it's really, really fun. If I was on the receiving end of that and it was a book that I loved, I would probably just gift it to a friend or someone who I like that yeah. hasn't read it. So it's cool. It works mm-hmm. both ways. So it sounds like, you know, just in terms of like your thought process, you're outside of the box. You're, you have an outside of the box thinking in terms of how to approach getting traffic to the store and getting customers to come and kind of making Avid a brand, not using that term in like a bad way, using it in the best possible way. It's, mm-hmm. more, it's more than just a bookstore. You have author events. Do you, do you broadcast those in terms of technology? Are you guys thinking about using technology and social media to kind of expand your reach? Yes, we've talked about it. We haven't taken action yet, mainly because it feels, even though we have so many employees, it always feels like we're short-staffed because we, thankfully, are kept very busy. I have a lot of strategic planning that I do behind the scenes, and then I sort of, well, I'll talk with my individual staff because I have a school staff that works with our Avid in Schools program, and I have an Avid events team, and so we have all these different teams that work at Avid, and I will meet with them periodically to say, like ask them what their ideas are and tell them what I'm thinking. And we actually had a long meeting yesterday focused on marketing and social media. And that's a long-term goal. Yeah. Cause your events, your events are content. And, and I feel like some of the people that let's say you only have a capacity for like maybe 50 people for seats, there might be 500 people that want to watch, you know, and mm-hmm. um, if there's a way that you could bundle an experience for them, I'm a little curious about why it's not happening more in indie books. And I understand resources and time and, and headcount and all that is part of it. But to me, it's like a huge way to connect with readers and audience. So I'm always curious to hear from someone in your shoes, what your thought process is, mm-hmm. and if it's something that you're considering in the future yeah i'm definitely considering it and i honestly like i think a lot of the time it's just like oh gosh we have so many other ideas like, i know what, I what know. are we going to prioritize um but i there are lots of things as a business owner that i know it's very foolish i'm not doing yet like and then once but you I can only do, do so much things, yeah it's true but also it's kind of silly like as soon as i make a change that i know is very important to have made it's not so bad, and I wonder why I just didn't do it sooner. Like, yeah, oh, that's classic. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, we were talking about that today, too, when I was talking with a couple of my managers when the store was kind of quiet. We were just talking about how even a couple of years ago, how different our systems were in our organization and how it worked for us fine at the time, but we can't imagine having to go back. And so it's kind of neat to have such a dynamic, ever-changing workplace. And I was in a business class over the course of several weeks earlier, this year and 
I can't tell you how thrilled I was to hear that it's a sign of a really strong business if management structure changes and if you're constantly adapting and changing. Because I always felt like it was good, but when I talk to other business owners about how often we shift things around, including changing the store layout or saying, you know, having one floor manager didn't work. What happens if we have two? You know, just sort of switching the dynamics of the store is a good thing because we're responding to customer needs and staff needs and continually trying to figure out how we can make ends meet and make enough money and continue to serve the customers in a really meaningful way. So I think even, I mean, with the podcast... Well, having these big ideas on your radar in the first place is, I think, 80% of the the hard part is done, like just being aware. <laughs> That's encouraging. Circling, circling it on your calendar, like, you know, on the 30th of the month, we need to talk about this and just backburning it. But um, it's cool to see that you're doing these things, like the way that you're approaching children's design for the space and the subscription program, I think, is a super cool idea, especially the kids angle, because there's a company, I don't know if you're familiar with them or not. Um, I have a little kid, so I'm like, this is part of my business to know about all these different things. Mm-hmm. That you can, there's a company called Little Passports. They send the kids these little... Yeah these little kits on a specific country. It's like a geography based thing. And the kid gets something in the mail and they basically become, you know, whiz kids on this one country or this one region. And they have like little characters and they have a map that's very detailed and, uh, you know, kid centric and it's people love it. There's two things that they're, that they're really hitting on. One is children being able to receive new and unique pieces of mail and then the parents getting to like open that and explore a, like a new treasure chest if you will and spend an afternoon or a weekend doing it it's it's kind of a cool idea and it sounds like you're what you're doing there is similar in a way because if i if my kid were to open up the box and he were to see three new books um that were handpicked based on recommendations and based on preferences that he didn't know we made he would be like, wow, how did they know? Or this is so cool. And I wanted mm-hmm. this. And it's, it just perpetuates this thing that you're trying to do, which is great. Yes. Oh, that's very well said. And I did, I, there are lots of ideas too that we have, particularly with the more whimsical aspects of the business. Just, I keep, I try to reiterate with my staff, like we want people to have these little moments of magic and whimsy and delight when they're in the store or when they're getting a package from us. So if I ever see a package on the counter that, you know, there's just, it's clearly just an envelope and someone put a book in it and put the shipping label. I'm like, where's the decoration? Put some stickers. Like, There's actually a, there's a website that I don't, I don't know the name of it, but you can probably find it if you do a search, they curate, they, somebody takes a picture of all these different packages and they un, basically what they do is they unwrap a package and then they take the pictures of that un, unboxing, if you will. And they mm-hmm. rank the best companies or the best, you know, organizations that send, you know, who has the best packages. And you can get a lot of ideas from that in terms of like, whether oh, it's a, that's a great idea, whether it's a handwritten note or how they tie a, a bow a certain way or whether they include a little trinket or just basically over delivering kind of, you know, making, making the, Mm -hmm. the unboxing and experiential thing. And I wish I knew the name, but like I said, I think if you search for it, you'll find it and you can get some, you can pick up some really cool ideas at a minimum. Yeah. I will Google that definitely. Cause I want that too. If, if we are sending books to customers that just are shopping with us online, if it's a book that we're shipping out for them, I want them to be delighted by the package they receive. And sometimes the holdup is, I mean, honestly, a lot of the time it's me is that I, if I would just sit down and take 30 minutes to write a shipping checklist and the reason why we're including all these cute little goodies and notes 
and just post it and say, this is a new policy. We could do it. But instead I work on something else that at the moment I deem more important and then go back and one at a time I'll, I'll mention offhand a different booksellers who are setting out packages for the day, but I haven't made it a policy. And a lot of that's just me. Like I have just this entrepreneurial mindset where I'm always coming up with ideas, but I don't necessarily always have the, uh, self-discipline to put them in action, which is why I hire people who <laughs> do have that kind of personality. So I can say, I have this dream, so-and-so do it. <laughs> and so that's been really great for our book subscriptions program lately. We have a manager of it now who has a lot of creative, creative ideas on her own. But then when I tell her, like, I want this to happen, figure out how to do it. And she does it. And it's still a little hard, even though I've been a boss for years, it feels a little bit funny to, especially for more creative ideas to give tasks related that related to that to someone else because not only am I giving up the power but I have I I want to be happy with what she comes up with and it's not going to be what I came up with necessarily but it's probably going to be better as good or better than what I would have come up with and guess what like it's been how many almost seven years since my store opened and I still haven't done those things on my sheet so it's better (laughs) to get someone else to do them and I can tweak them as necessary rather than sort of hold them all close to the chest and wait for this non-existent time when I'm going to do it myself. Yeah. I don't know if any of that makes sense, but it's hard as a very creative person. It totally does. <laughs> having, having a balance between doing things yourself and delegating and then just, and also not letting perfection get in the way of good enough. You know, that's, I think that's yeah. a little bit of it as well. Across the country, I have noticed, just in terms of sales and the discussions I've had, I've noticed that poetry is having a moment. Um, is that the case mm-hmm. for you guys as well? Or have you noticed an uptick in poetry sales? We have, and I, I haven't looked at our sales numbers on it from the last few months. We also, we partner with the University of Georgia, different departments a lot, the creative writing department and the English department. And we have a poetry series that we host. And so we... We have events-related sales that kind of boost that, um, those section sales, too. But we also have a, more people on staff that are really passionate about poetry mm-hmm. and reading it and recommending it. And uh, they're excellent at working with people who think that they've read everything. And they're really excellent at working with people who had had negative experiences with poetry and thought they didn't like it. And so I think a lot of the success for us is this really genuine, meaningful hand-selling of poetry and, you know, opening a book to a certain page saying, read this page and see if you want to get it. So our poetry sections have grown, and they I would say they're, they're earning their keep uh, at the moment. Um, but each shop, we've grown the poetry section shelf by shelf. And as, as you know, the poetry spines are pretty skinny, and we have some full bookcases full of poetry and lots of really amazing face-outs, and it continues to sell, and we continue to have great events. I mean, we've had a few events where it was not even at my store, but at a larger venue where we're partnering with another organization. We also work with the Georgia Review, which is a nationally renowned literary magazine, and when we do events with them... I mean, the room is packed, and it's fascinating to look around and be like, not only are this many people out for a poet, but this many people in Athens, Georgia, who are out for a poet. This is awesome. (laughs) So it's been really neat to see not only the purchasing power of those readers, but also just how they they show up for poetry, which is really cool. I'm just going to get this out of the way, because... I, I had to bring it up at, at, at a certain point. Um, is is Amazon on your radar, or are at this point are, are you pre, are you pretty much like whatever? 
Um, I'm not like whatever. Um, but I, I have a, I have a lot of issues with Amazon and it's not just because I own a bookstore. I'm, I'm gravely concerned about their impact on American communities. And it, my struggle recently in the last few years has been trying to get other small business owners to care because I think people just assume that the reason I care about it is because of the bookstore. And to be honest with you, I feel very confident in my bookstores. Like we're doing well. Amazon's growing like mad and always has. I'm not, I'm not worried about them driving Avid Bookshop out of business, but I am worried about the impact they're having on our main streets and on their, um, how they're evading having to collect and remit sales tax for their third-party sellers. I mean, we finally so so-called like won the battle with them in terms of them collecting sales tax in Georgia on their sales, but now they're evading tax on their, their marketplace vendors. So there's, there's just such a huge impact, and I feel like a lot of the time my voice is not heard or else people assume that I'm coming at it because I'm afraid that they're going to hurt my business. And again, I'm not... I, I keep an eye on them, but I'm not currently worried that they're going to put me under. I'm worried about downtown Athens. I'm worried about our thriving neighborhoods. I'm worried about the streets and the schools that are not going to get the added boost they need from sales tax. You know, it's, it's such a complicated issue, and it's been supremely frustrating for me to, like, I share a lot of links from the Institute of Local Self-Reliance and things that Stacey Mitchell, who's a researcher and hero of mine, what she writes about, and it's like facts-based, evidence-based, data-driven information on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, I wish I had someone else who would sort of send out that info because I almost feel like people just see me just like, wah, 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 wah. I, I, I hate Amazon. And it's, yeah, again, it's frustrating. Um, we have a few, we don't have as much trouble with showrooming. So for people listening, but you know, people coming in and, looking at prices on the back of our books and then price shopping on Amazon and just buying on Amazon. We yeah. don't have that happen very often at all that I have noticed. And we, we have a lot of interaction with customers. I think it's been a, become a little bit of a cultural taboo to do that now. I feel like it's just sort of like, oh, bad, I feel like it's just sort of bad manners, but look, that's me. That's, that's my, and, and, mm-hmm. the, and the cohort of people that I associate with. Yeah. I don't think you can really stop that. I mean, that happens at, that happens at car dealerships all the way down to, you know, yes. uh, at grocery stores. So showrooming is just a thing. And it's nice to hear that you say it's not happening at your store. The take that I get, the temperature that I get from, from indie bookstores is that people that come there want to be there. They're, uh, they're, yeah. cho- they're choosing to be at your store. They know very well that if they see a book or if they want a book, they can just buy it online in 30 seconds and be done. Um, they're intentionally coming to you and they're intentionally seeking an experience. Like, do you agree with that? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's an excellent point. And I think that works for the vast majority of our customers. And once in a while, especially among, we have a really large student population here. We have several universities, including yeah. UGA, which is gigantic. Right. So once in a while, it's it's often an undergrad or graduate student who's newer to town yeah. who, who will overhear saying something like, oh my God, this is $10 on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And I've trained my staff, but if they're comfortable, we're just like, hey, I'm happy to talk with you about why our prices are higher than Amazon. Give them publishing industry 101 real quick. Yeah. And <laughs> just like, and if they want to talk about it, great. And if they don't, that's fine. But like, we just put it out there. It's if it's obvious that we're in earshot, I'm not going to, like I, I know some bookstore owners 
I've talked to who are like, we ban cell phones. I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. But if I, if we see someone with a cell phone once in a while, I don't, I guess I just, maybe I'm naive, but I, I assume the best of people all the time. Yeah. And I would just assume like you're checking your email or if best case scenario, you're taking a picture of a book at my store and you're not doing it because you're going to try to buy it cheaper somewhere else. You're trying to remember what you want. And so if I see someone like that, we'll sometimes be like, oh, if you post anything on social media, tag us. We love to see your pictures. So there are all these ways to let people know that I hate, like, I'm not spying on people. But I just want them to know, like, hey, we see each other. We know what's happening. And I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't want to say, put your cell phone away while you're in here. Like, my shop is not about rules. And interacting online is one of the many things that I think we do really well. And we want people to to like us and to take pictures of what they like in the store and to share it with their friends and to have a positive memory of being at Avid Bookshop. And I think scolding people or putting up warning signs that everyone's going to ignore anyway, that doesn't really lend itself to a welcoming atmosphere. So I don't really You're do it. And right. maybe that's part of the reason I don't feel like it happened. So. Yeah, and another thing, and one of the reasons, one of the motivations behind the series that we're doing here is that we want to explain to younger generations that there are options online, but if like, you would not be able to go into a store like yours and actually browse if everybody just bought everything online. So the fact that they're able to have exactly. that experience, awareness is a big part of that. And also realizing that when you become a taxpayer in a community that you live in, in a place that you decide to buy a house in, you want that neighborhood to be walkable and you want that neighborhood to have places where you can take your kids. So that, that okay. aspect of it, I think is lost on college students because they're kind of in their own head and they're just kind of like in their own little universe but it starts with awareness right so yes that's genius i agree with that yeah are there any changes that you'd like to see in the book industry as a whole oh lord yes I read one of the write-ups um, on on about your store and you in particular, and you don't you don't come from the book business, you don't come from the publishing world, uh, you don't come from retail, so you kind of are an outsider, if you will, from the standpoint of open-mindedness. I'll say, what changes would you like to see? Like, if you had a magic wand and you could and you could really really make an impact on one aspect, uh, just because I know there's probably a laundry list, and let's just make it like if there's if there's mm-hmm. one specific thing that you would like to see change that would be beneficial to booksellers, that would be beneficial official to customers, what would it be? Um, my main thing that I've been focusing on this year is just the concept of scarcity and near poverty that we, I think it's sort of accepted wisdom as bookstore owners and bookstore employees that, you know, you do this job because you love it and you're never going to make money from it. And I'm really sick of it. Like, I think that that's been the pattern so far, but a lot of the patterns, they're based on averages. And can I, I'm continually trying to explore ways that we can get better terms with publishers and come up with different ways where this can not only be a meaningful lifestyle for people who love books, but also something that will allow me and other people who work in bookstores to actually save up enough money to have a down payment for a house one day and to not live paycheck to paycheck. And I'm really tired of the messaging of just the, like, oh, if you work in a bookstore, like, you you got to do it your all heart, and you must live in a tiny little apartment and barely make ends meet, but that's okay because you have books. And I, I don't think that those things are mutually exclusive. And so mm. I've been trying to sort of challenge that belief of, again, like kind of near poverty and 
I don't have a lot of power because, you know, the, I'm in an industry where the price is written on the book. And already we're having institutions like Amazon challenge consumers' beliefs in what a book is worth. So we're charging exactly what the publisher has told us to, but we also have terms that are dictated by those publishers. And so there's not a lot of wiggle room to pay for my ever-increasing rent, ever-increasing insurance, and I want to be able to pay my booksellers, many of whom are extremely well-educated and could go somewhere else and get a better-paying job. I want to be able to pay them, and honestly, I want to pay myself better. Like, I'm, I don't have any savings, and it's kind of crazy to me to... I think that if I, if if twenty five year old Janet could look at thirty eight year old Janet and see like, wow, she has two bookstores and she rents a house in this nice neighborhood, like she must be rolling in cash. Like, no, I'm in debt. <laughs> and I think it's sort of, it doesn't sit well with me that someone like me who has started a business that has, I mean, by all accounts, not just my own, has really changed the city and has yeah. affected the, the nationwide publishing industry. Like, how is it that? I can't afford, like, I couldn't even consider buying a house. I couldn't consider contributing to the economy or to my own life that way. And I think it's, I think it's screwed up. And I don't know if it's because we have these antiquated pricing models with publishers. I don't, I, I don't know what the solution is, but I'm tired of us telling ourselves the story that we're only in it for the love of books. Because I am in it for the love of books, but also it would be really nice not to panic every month when I have to pay my insurance bill. You know what I mean? Totally. Oh, that's been crazy. No, you um, you hit on a really interesting point, and you're, I think you're the first person that has actually said it. The narrative uh, overwhelmingly is, and this is limited to the prism of my experience with this podcast series, that, yeah, it's a passion project. It's all about passion, and it's all about... Uh, there's only been two other people that I've spoken to at, at length about the fact that it's also a business. Cause one of the questions that I ask mm-hmm. um, is like, what do you say to somebody who wants to open a bookstore that doesn't have a, some of the stores I've spoken with are legacy bookstores. They've been there for decades. They've been supported by benevolent landlords or whatever for someone who's just starting out and wants to open a bookstore. What advice would you give them? Um, only two people have said they got to understand the math and they have to understand at the end of the day that this is a business and you have to make money. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you're going to go out of business and you're right. You don't have control over the pricing. And one of the solutions or not even really a solution, but one of the ideas that's always tossed around is coming up with like a bundling price. So like mm-hmm. you, you buy a book, you, that entitles you to the ebook experience and that entitles you to the audio experience. So if you start uh, and one thing and you jump in your car, you can pick up where you left off on the audio, so on and so forth. But nobody's doing anything about it. And I'm just as an outsider, I feel like there's a lot of money being left on the table. Even from Amazon standpoint, I feel like there's a lot of things that could be done to make the book more of an object of desire as opposed to a commodity. And I'm, you know, I'm scratching my head just as I'm sure you are as to why nobody's taking that, especially the publisher's why they're not taking that more seriously. You know, it's, um, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I remember like <laughs> actually talking to Mark Kaufman, the person that put us, gave you my name yeah. about this years ago, asking like, Hey, is there any bundling with eBooks and paper books? And this is when people weren't really sure what happened, what happened with eBooks. And at this point I know, I mean, I never really thought they'd be a threat to my as then non-existent business or else I wouldn't have gone into business. But I thought, like, oh, this is so obvious. Like, if one publisher owns the rights to a book, just give people the ebook too. And I remember asking him, and he's like, you know what? I don't know if that exists. And this is probably like 
2010 or something. And he did yeah. some research. He's like, yeah, I don't see any evidence of that. But I just remember thinking like, and also just simple things that like I wanted to, at one point I was like, maybe when I thought that eBooks would make me any money. And by the way, they are more harmful for, at least for my store than good. But I remember thinking like, what if I just sold cool little cards, like sort of credit card size cards that would be redeemable for a downloadable book? How cool. You could still be browsing and you could buy the paper book or you could buy the little card that, that is the e-version of the paper book. And it gives you this download code, just the way a lot of musician friends used to sell their, or used to use to sell their albums. Yeah. It just seems like I don't, again, like I don't, I don't know enough about publishing to know publisher's stance, but it really does feel like, based, again, not based on a gut feeling and not on a lot of data. It feels like publishers are sort of stuck in this financial model that is decades and decades old, and they've sort of responded to emergencies here and there, like, oh crap, ebooks are taking off. What are we going to do? we better bow to whatever Jeff Bezos or Amazon says we should do. And, oh, crap, we just lost so much money. We got, yeah. yeah. It's a reactionary mindset as opposed to, like, an innovative mindset. Yes, and that's perplexing to me because if, yeah, anyway. So I, I, I feel that way. Like, there's, yeah, a lot of reactivity and not a lot of proactiveness on behalf of publishers. And I think that probably buys into this mindset of us, of everybody barely making it all the time. Yeah. And I think that there are probably better solutions out there, but if people can't see the benefit to them immediately, or if there's not a threat that's pushing them to make that decision right away, then they're not going to, which, you know, I don't run a huge multi-million dollar company, so I don't know what that would be like to have to try to decide, but it is, it can be a little infuriating sometimes to see all the technological innovations and other ways that we could maybe be creating a more sustainable industry for everybody from the authors all the way up to the bookstores and the publishers. And I feel a little bit powerless sometimes when it comes to that. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to end on a lighter note. <laughs> we'll do a lightning mm-hmm. We'll do a lightning round. I'm going to ask you just a handful of questions, and they can be yes or no's, um, or you can deep dive. Always curious to hear these answers, and I love them. Um, what does Avid look like in a year? Oh, I think... Where do you we want to the be? Same. I think um, I want our customer service is, I think, already exemplary. I want to be better. I want our systems to be better organized so that any bookseller, regardless of if they've been there for three weeks or two years, can easily check and make sure that they know what the protocol is on any given situation. Even though I don't want to franchise my business, I've identified a lot with this book, The E-Myth Revisited by Michael book. Gerber, which... Yeah. Yeah, I avoided it for years because I thought it was about ebooks or something. Like, I just was like, e-myth, I don't know, I don't do the internet, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it was great. We read it in my business class. And so I'm trying to figure out, like, he talks, as you know, a lot about creating systems as if you're a franchise, kind of like as if you're a McDonald's, even if you only have one branch of your business. Right. Making sure that everyone knows the systems. And I think that will, we don't have a lot of customer issues, but I think that that would help avoid 99.9% of any customer service issues, billing issues. Um, I really want to be more systematic, not so that we're like automatons, but so that we can free up our energy to be more personable and interact with customers in a more meaningful way because we're not distracted by, oh, wait, I forget what the procedure is for this. So 
definitely help. I want to do more business to business sales. And I, we've been very grateful in that a lot of our bulk buying sales, like from the University of Georgia or the school district, a lot of those have come to us, which I'm very grateful for. But I want to be in a position where we're busy, but not so busy that we can't proactively seek more business, if that makes sense. What is What, what are some other B2B sales sources? I've, uh, that's, that's an interesting concept to me. Like, Are you talking about like companies that are buying books in bulk for their staff? or? Yes. And I know like, traditionally, I think in, with most publishers, they use B2B, meaning either 25 or 50 copies of the same book sent directly to one company. Got it. Okay. I use it a little more loosely in that I could send self-single copies. But there are things that I've been thinking of doing for years that I haven't done, like with local realtors saying, you know, here are five books. Like when you leave that welcome package on the new home buyers, like in their living room of the house that they're about to move into, why don't you include this book about Athens or this book about Georgia or this beautiful design book about how to design their home, you know, Love just it. like speaking that kind of thing and like working with, uh, Rotary clubs or business organizations or Chamber of Commerce in Athens just saying, hey, I, I'm Janet. I own a business, and these are like the top five business books I had. Are you interested in making a bulk purchase? Great, here's, here's great idea. Like, yeah. I've never heard that before. That's so, so cool. Oh, my God, really? Yeah, I'm not kidding. I would love, if I was a homeowner and I, and I walked into my house and there were three books that were welcoming me, to the, welcoming me to the city and kind of giving me a lay of the land and it was gifted to me by my realtor, it would, I would, it would go a long way. Exactly. And then when you had a friend who was like, hey, I want to move to your town, you'd be like, you know who's a great realtor? Exactly. So, so. Exactly. <laughs> I think it would help them too. I just haven't done it yet. Why haven't I yet? Well, you got to, I'm if Sir, put that on the top of your list. That's a really, really unique idea. Okay. I, I haven't heard anything like I'm that. I'm writing it right now. That's so cool. What are you reading at the moment? I, so I usually read a book and I listen to a book at the same time. Um, I'm listening to a book called Truth by Hector MacDonald. MacDonald. How the many sides to every story shape our reality. And I'm listening to it because, <laughs> to make a long story very short, we had a uh, we had a situation last month where private school we were working with doing a book fair. A uh, parent complained about a book we had, and then the, one of the administrators asked us to first put the book aside and then told us to hide the book, hmm. which is an issue of censorship. Yeah. And so that you can you can Google us, and <laughs> we're all over the news. We're in Publishers <laughs> Weekly about it too. So I'm fascinated because, you know, I wasn't there when the book was, I wasn't at the book fair when the administrator asked the book to be pulled based on the parent's concern. So I was taking the perspective of my booksellers, whom I trust intuitively, and then the head of school was hearing his administrator's point of view. So it's just been kind of interesting. So I really wanted to listen to this audio book, which I got from our Libro.fm avid bookshop site. It was a free listening copy for booksellers this month, and I just am, I'm, it's been really eye-opening in terms of how two sets of eyes can see the same exact situation and take away different perspectives, or how you can present the same sets of data and still come up with two different conclusions, or five different conclusions. So it's helped me wrap my brain around a little bit about this complicated situation we have with a school that we love dearly and we want to continue working with. But I also am trying to figure out a way to continue working with them 
in a way that my staff still feel safe going there, that they don't feel as if it's an unsafe situation or that they feel like they're being discriminated against. Anyway, that's why I chose that book. Um, and I'm also listening, oh, sorry, I'm reading a book called, oh, I can't, it's by Kate Messner. It's an advanced reading copy, and I'm not going to remember this thing, the name of it. It's not Escape, uh, but it's it's a middle grade book, so geared towards readers, you know, between 8 and 12-ish. Mm-hmm. And it's about, so the, the author, Kate Messner, lived in northern New York the summer when a couple of inmates escaped from the prison. And so she wrote this really fascinating book, and it's sort of, in, it's, it's set up in post-its, texts, recorded conversations, just this sort of multimedia adventure where instead of her being an adult describing it, she has these two friends uh, who I think are in middle school getting really fascinated by the case of these two inmates having broken out of jail. But subtly she, she drops information about um, just sort of the, how there are more, way more proportionally, like there are many more African-American men in the jail, yet there's an extremely low African-American population in the town. So she's sort of putting these little lessons about mass incarceration and jail time and law enforcement in, in the sort of way that introduces these topics, these social justice-oriented topics to younger readers in a quieter way so that they can answer questions, but she's not saying, this is right, this is wrong. You know, it's, it's really well done. It's called Breakout. That's what it's called. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm loving those. Great. Um, are there any writers out there that you'd like to mention that you think should be getting more attention? Yes. I can think of, let me think of three, all of whom I know personally. Um, two of them work for me, and they're awesome, and they're both published with Scholastic. Um, Caleb Hewitt uh, wrote this book called Top Elf, which on the surface is about the competition on the North Pole to be the next Santa Claus, (laughs) which sounds very silly, and it is, and it's hilarious, but also, I think it's important for many reasons. One of which is that Caleb is this very kind, creative, hilarious, openly queer man who is a manager of Avid, but the book speaks so well to friendship and rooting for each other, and unlike a lot of more like snarky TV that's geared towards middle grade readers. It is about friendship and standing up for each other, but not in like a saccharine way that makes your teeth hurt. It's just a sweet way of being like, Hey, like we kids can be good to each other and root for each other. Um, it's a really, really great book. I was very pleasantly surprised. I was going to read it regardless because I love him, but I was really impressed with how it was. And we've had a lot of customers be just delighted by it. Um, and then my other coworker, Will Walton, um, he's been with Abbott for years, but he has two books out, but his newest book comes out next month. And oh, I really hope you read it. It defies all expectation and genre. So it's called, I felt the funeral in my brain, the quote from Emily Dickinson. And it is like, I keep telling people I'm going to shove it in young adult and poetry and adult fiction because it's brilliantly done. It deals with grief and addiction, but in this lighthearted, fascinating way. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's an, an amazing book. And we're doing this big pre-order campaign now where if you order it before it comes out on May 29th, the Avid Bookshop staff were donating 25 minutes of volunteer time per pre-order. 
Um, and those 25 minutes will be spent with the Athens Community Council on Aging's Grandparents Raising Grandchildren program, because that also ties into the book. So we're dedicating our volunteer time for every book that's sold, which um, is something that Will thought of, which I thought was awesome, and Will's wonderful. And then the third person I mentioned, oddly, is also a kid's author. Um, I read I read mostly adult fiction, but for some reason, these are the people I think of. Um, Laurel Snyder, who is really prolific, and for years she was sort of what they call mid-list authors with her publishers, so yeah. she wasn't one of the huge like breakout hits that they were putting all their marketing dollars behind, but she wasn't low enough on the totem pole that they weren't continuing to publish her. But she now has a couple different publishers that I think are really recognizing her talent, but she really does a great job. She writes picture books in early readers and middle grade, but she just taps into this beautiful nostalgia that would, I think, work well for kids that really love, like, A Wrinkle in Time and even, like, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, like, this this world where magic meets reality, where I think a lot of creative adults still sort of live. And, they, you know, a lot of the, like, I wonder if. <laughs> so for really empathetic readers of all ages who just sort of wonder about the magic in everyday lives, I think would really love her stuff. And she's getting more recognition. One of her books won the Theodore Geisel Award last month, but I would love to see her really skyrocket to the top. She's also just a genuinely kind and wonderful person, but her writing is exquisite. And she's a trained poet from the Iowa Writers Workshop, and you can tell that in her language, which I really appreciate. Wow, great recommendations. So much passion. I love it. Hey, thanks. (laughs) Complete the sentence for me. Athens is? Creative. I know I keep saying that word, but it's true. Yeah, Athens is creative. It's a creative enclave. What book have you recommended the most over the years? That's a really tough one. I am not sure. I feel like I want to say anything by Maggie O'Farrell, who's a writer that I really love. Her um, fiction works are among my most favorite novels ever. Uh, And her memoir that came out in January called I Am, I Am, I Am mm-hmm. 17 Brushes with Death another uh, Emily Dickinson reference, I think, no, no, sorry, Sylvia Plath reference. She is amazing and I'm really hoping that that new memoir opens readers up to her fiction because she's a beautiful writer. So I'd say her and maybe Elizabeth Strout um, who wrote many things among them Olive Kitteridge and then her most recent is Anything is Possible and she's one of those authors that like, I usually can keep my cool when I meet an author, and I met her in a hotel lobby when someone from Random House introduced me, and I just cried like a weirdo. I was like, hi, <laughs> I like books. And she was like, okay, thank you. And I was like, oh, I love you. She was like, okay, thank you. I know. I, I, <laughs> yeah, she's someone who would drive me to tears. <laughs> I've talked to so many people, and I myself have these little notes of things I would say to certain people if I ever met them. And every single one, every single person I've ever met that has actually met one of those people, they've just completely collapsed and fallen apart. Uh, oh, at the man. So, so have you actually fallen apart 
meeting someone? Uh, not yet. I haven't been lucky. Oh, I've seen th- this individual. I won't name him, but I've seen this individual three times in the course of my life and uh, in three different cities at different times in my life. And it's just, it's crazy. And I, I have this whole little spiel for him, but uh, I actually just had an encounter with a friend of mine who met Bjork. Bjork is her favorite musician of oh all time. God. And she's just, she said, I had, to, I had to go up to her and her husband was pressuring her and she said, you have to go say hi to her. You have to go say hi to her. My friend lived in Brooklyn and apparently that's where Bjork lives too. I hope I'm not going to get in trouble for saying this, but they, she went, (laughs) she went up to her in this restaurant. She was sitting with her, with her son and she just leaned over and said something and Bjork turned around and just nodded and my friend said that the nod was everything it was the nod that basically oh, encapsulated. she just sort of like she just sort of acknowledged her but i was like why didn't you say more and she's just like i all i wanted to say how, how awesome she was so oh that's wonderful good on you for doing that you know to that author and then good on my friend for doing it because you just sometimes you just have to let it out they need to uh, to appreciate someone and to share with someone how yeah. much they mean to you so that's cool and i will say like most of my author friends like I'm, i don't know if you know the ya author jennifer niven i don't she she's amazing and she's become a good friend of mine but i didn't realize how famous she had become until we were at book expo together a couple of years ago just trying to foot, find a place where we could just go sit and have coffee and lunch and hang out. But like everywhere we went, like people would stop her and run into her and just start sobbing and be like, oh, and she'd be like, oh, hi. And like give him a hug. She was so great with everybody. But finally, like we had to find a completely out of the way spot, like on the third floor of a convention center in the corner of this empty cafeteria in order to get some time to talk. And I remember asking her, like, tell me the truth. Like, does it ever get annoying? And she's like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Like, if she was explaining how she spends most of her career in a room by herself, yeah, not knowing if the words she writes are going to resonate with anybody. She's like, oh, it's everything to me. To like, she's like, I'm, not that I want people to cry, but for them to have such an emotional response to seeing my name yeah. is more than I could ever ask for. And I thought, okay, so I want to remember that. Like, every time I, the few times I cry when I meet somebody that I admire so much, like, most likely, even if they get that all the time, I'm just going to choose to assume they appreciate it. <laughs> no, you should, every, everybody who's listening and everybody out there should choose to do what you did as opposed to just hiding and not saying anything because that's what life's all about. That's what, that's what this whole thing mm-hmm. that we do is about. So, um, that's cool. And it's cool to hear that anecdote that you gave. Thanks for sharing it. Finally, last but not least, what's in your ideal sandwich? <laughs> all right. Some white American cheese, which sounds so racist, but it's true. I love some white American cheese. Some spinach, not shredded iceberg. I want spinach. I want some tomato. I want a lot of mayonnaise, which grosses so many people out. And I want some bread and butter pickles. And I need it to be toasted sourdough bread. Awesome. Janet, thank you so much for participating in this. You are awesome. Your store is awesome. Thank you. And I, I wish you well, and uh, I'll talk to you at some point in the future, I hope. That sounds good. Thank you so much, Vic. This has been really a treat. Take care. You've been listening to Book Stories. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to shows. Book Stories is an alternate Thursdays production. Special thanks to Savannah Wright for production assistance. I'm Vic Singh. Thanks for listening.